When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking. What's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 313. Short intro this morning, because right now I'm in Tacoma, Washington, uh, and I had to do radio all morning, and I haven't eaten today, so the fact that I am starving is your gain in the way of not going long on this uh, intro. So I would remind you that uh, we're going to be performing at SF Sketchfest at sfsketchfest.com in San Francisco uh, next weekend, which would be the uh, 31st, 1st, and 2nd, I believe the 2nd of February is our uh, live podcast there, so check that out online. I would like to thank Carbonite for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist podcast. Carbonite is online backup. Uh, if you're a, someone who kind of seldom backs up or you don't, you're like, eh, what, what's the worst that could happen? Well, losing all of your information is the worst thing that could happen, and it sucks it hard when that happens, because there's no one to punch but yourself. So, uh, backup, I, I, I recommend backing up on hard drives, but I also back up uh, on the cloud as well. With Carbonite, your files are automatically and continually backed up, so use Carbonite. It's easy to restore them once, when you lose stuff, because machines do fail. They die. Sometimes you have to take them out back. Uh, your better backup plan for home and small businesses, Carbonite. Plans start at $59 a year. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code NERDIST to get two bonus months with purchase. That's Carbonite.com and enter the promo code NERDIST. Um, Peter Farrelly is today's guest, a guy that I've kind of known not super well, but certainly enough that I'd be like, hey, Pete, and he'd be like, Chris, how are you? And then we high five and then uh, and then probably go talk to other people. But he's great. I love Peter Farrelly as a, a, I mean, like anyone who's ever worked with him will tell you that he's one of the nicest guys that you could meet. Just a nice, like, a regular dude who's made some fucking amazing comedies with some fucking amazing people. Movie 43 opens today. Uh, so, well, the day this podcast dropped. I, should, I probably don't have to justify that every time. Like, you guys understand how this stuff works. But um, Movie 43 is sort of like a mega sketch movie, kind of in the vein of Kentucky Fried Movie. And uh, that opens today. They, we talk a lot about it in the podcast, so you'll hear more about it. And also some amazing facts about uh, some of those comedies that I mentioned before, things I didn't know. There's some good Bill Murray stories in there. This, 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 is a, this, this podcast has it all. Uh, so here we go. You know, in retrospect, I guess this was about the same as a normal intro length, so I didn't really shorten it that much at all. And I'm actually making it longer by continuing to talk now. I'm awesome. Uh, all right, here we go. The Nurse Podcast, number 313, with the wonderful and kind and hilarious and cool Peter Farrelly. Now entering Nerdist.com.
<laughs> Peter Farrelly, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Pete, you uh, are a guy that I have had contact with over the years. I think the first time I met you, I was doing a radio show in Los Angeles. You were promoting There's Something About Mary. And you came on and you were like, guys, I know this sounds crazy because I made this movie. But there's insane shit that you've never seen before in this movie. There's like a cum glob and hair. Like you started going through all this stuff. I'm like, how crazy is this movie? And then, of course, I saw it and I was like, holy fuck. He was not kidding. Yeah. This I movie remember was those days actually before it came out because it did not get a good push, by the way. It didn't open, you know. The movie only opened to 13. Sleeper. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, back then, of course, you could not open and hang in the theaters a little longer and hopefully hopefully find an audience. Really hard to do now. But I remember like going on these shows saying, guys, you got to watch this thing. I'm telling you, it's really funny. <laughs> that was you really, like, sure that was before social media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had a, a partner, right? Was, I did. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. my old radio partner, Cortland Cox. And then I remember uh, uh, a few years later, I got a uh, song that Charlie Wessler sent me on that you had done, uh, Hard and Firm. Yeah. Yes. And that was one of the most hilarious songs in the world. I thought that was just an incredibly funny song. And I said, okay, we got to get this in. Um, uh, I tried to get it in like three movies. We finally did put it in the Three Stooges. Awesome. As you know. And then at the very end, it uh, it, it got cut. Because it was at the end of the movie, we, we waited too long for the song to come out. Uh, in the movie, everybody's like impatient by the end. They're like, come on, get on with it. But anyway, it's in the DVD. Oh, well, th oh, that's yeah. awesome. Thank yeah. you. I'm so glad. Yes, it is. This What's is the song? Funkhauser. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was uh, which was largely a Furman production because he just had this idea that it's it's like that it's like the old sessions blues the, the guy. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Bell and the That's exactly right. Just yeah. basically calling in, bring it, and it just starts getting really yeah, crazy. I like that. I love that song. We could bring in a robot, put a force field yeah. around the ro you know. Yeah, yeah. By the way, why did you call it Harden Furman? Why don't you just call it the Hardons or something? Why, well, why because my last name is Hardwick and his is Furman. I know. I'm kidding. Oh <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> See what happens when you have Why funny people on the show. Name? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is a new thing that I'm trying where someone poses a, a rhetorical comedy question, but then I try to answer it with real information. I like that. Yeah. that, you, that basically, I've become Twitter. It's like no matter how sarcastic you think you're being on Twitter, someone's like, here's the reason. You're like, God damn it, that was a joke. Come yeah, on, guys, fucking oh, back me up. But when you guys recorded, you were the only one that got headphones, right? I was the that's only one that got headphones. Move. Mike was not allowed headphones in Hard and Firm, and that's why it's so amazing. He guessed all of it. He guessed yeah, the, it. The you know, mix, that, yeah. You know, that's one of the horrors of doing uh, interviews is that, you know, sarcasm is lost on it. Like, you know, I, I, I actually think of this sometimes. Uh, I'm not religious, but I, I do believe there's a bigger picture out there. There's something going on that we don't see, we don't know. Some kind of a, let's say, God, okay? And... I wondered, does God have a sense, like, was God going to, like, get, like, oh, no, I was kidding. Like, if you do die and they play it back, they say, remember this joke? I'm like, no, 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 no. Or remember you said this? I said, no, that was a, that was a joke. I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah, I, it, I did say that, but that wasn't real. That The whole point was that it's how absurd that is. But yeah, I made, the yeah. I made the world in seven days. No, 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 that yeah. was a joke. Like, oh, well, it only took me seven days. Yeah. I, yeah, I always hate that when, like, when a comedian dies and they, like, at the Laugh Factory, it'll say, make God laugh. But the, but the concept of making someone laugh means that you're surprising them, and you cannot surprise an omnipotent being. Yes. So I, that always puts I'm me in I'm hoping that. But I did, like, we just did an interview last week with the New York Post, this woman in the New York Post, about this movie 43 that's yes. coming out. Movie 43, which is just like a Kentucky Fried movie, outrageously, like... Sketch movie. It. It's like a sketch, sketch movie. Sketch movie with all big stars, and all different writers, by the way, uh, all different writers, directors, stars, everything. We produced it, but uh, with uh, Charlie Wessler and John Panati. But um, 
Uh, we were joking around with the woman on the phone, and she's talking. Did anybody say no? I said, yeah, George Clooney told us. By the way, can, I don't know what the language is. Anything whatever. you want to say. Yeah. Okay, I said, yeah, George Clooney told us to fuck off. Now, George <laughs> Clooney didn't tell us to fuck off. He just passed, like people do in a movie, yeah. right? And uh, and then other things like, how did you get all these stars? We said, we guilted them into it. You know, like, she, well, the article comes out, and she says, these stars did not want to do it. They were guilted into it. George Clooney <laughs> said, fuck off. And, they, like, and, and just told it, like... Without the sarcasm part, which is horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's one and and it's one of those things that, like, you realize like, oh, okay, I can't do press anymore because you know <laughs> they just take whatever you say and switch it around. It was complete, and we were all laughing and having a good. There's time. no format or font for sarcasm, and I, for the longest time, have have wanted to pitch reverse italics. So anything that leans to the left, sarcasm. I like that. I like to think that if so you know, there's a keyboard, yeah. if there's a keyboard where you, like you, when you press the keys harder, they kind of get bigger and smaller. So it's like, oh, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. That's yeah. actually a really good idea. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, like a sensitive yeah. patented. What you already patented you that just now? It. You just I could just say it and then yeah. it's done. No. I think it is. Yeah, they have to run it's the, done. You done here's, paperwork. Here's the product. They would say they come back and they see the date on this. They say, well, he was the first yeah. one to do it. I'm going to mail this podcast to myself. And that's a uh, poor man's. No, I'm not going to open it. Okay. No, I'm just... It doesn't matter. No matter. No matter how much. Uh, no matter what you say, uh, Glee will still steal it, like they did with Jonathan you Colton. Are you familiar Quack. with the, the website Fark? Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, Fark is a, is, a, is a pillar of the internet. Yeah, I believe I was the first person ever to use that word. It was in my book, The Comedy Writer, where this woman calls this guy a fark. He, she goes, you're a fark. He goes, a what? A fark. He goes, what, what's a fark? A dog think, you idiot. It was what she <laughs> called a dog cock. Penis. Oh. Uh, a fark, F A R K, and uh, so I went back and I sued them. No, I'm kidding. But, uh, <laughs> no, but I, I do claim. Uh, I, I think I introduced the word. Wow. But they, by penis. the way, by the way, just to be clear, he didn't pick it up because that because I actually looked into it and he had been using it for another thing. Well, fa- oh. far, fark is fark's been around for a really long time, yeah. and they used to and like fark. Fark was sort of the uh, one of the original places where people would go and. Like there were a lot of a lot of memes came out of yeah. uh, a fark, right? A lot of classic memes you would see came when out did, of fark. Do, have memes been around that long? Because I just got yeah. into the whole meme thing in the last like six months. I'm like, memes. oh yeah. yeah, I think that's how long they've been around. I can't ever tell anymore with since, internet. Since internet the internet time is weird. Yeah. I don't I don't know how <laughs> soon we started calling them memes. I think the word meme came from Richard Dawkins. Yeah, uh, I think Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, the guy who wrote uh, the uh, um, God the, Complex. The God Complex. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you meant the host of. Uh, no, that's uh, Richard Dawson. Family Feud. Yeah, the host no. of Family Feud yeah. didn't do really anything okay. in internet related. No, I was surprised. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you'd think. I was. He's been waiting. The I don't know a lot time. about the internet. You'd think. You'd think that the anchor of Match Game. Yeah. <laughs> would, Actually, no. He started 4chan. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah, Richard Dawson. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Dawson started fortune. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number one meme. Top ten memes <laughs> on the board. Memes a French word, right? Meme, like mimeograph. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like yeah, like mimetic. Yeah. It's short for mimetic. Yes. Um, so I assume that it's probably uh, it probably has some sort of other language in origin. Perhaps yeah. a romance language like <laughs> French or Latin. I'm sure the right. internet will let us know right after this podcast. They, I don't goes think up. they will. No, I don't think they Something will. Something that they hold so dear. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, I've discovered about people on the internet is they go, you know, that guy will figure it out. I don't need to throw my two cents in there. Yeah. And everyone's not the worst person since Hitler. 
<laughs> Just what the internet loves to tell you. It has come up a lot. Um, it, do, do you feel like, well, you guys, give me a little background you know, on. If all you ever learned about or knew about Hitler was what you, uh, uh, you know, learned from watching the History Channel, yes. you think he was some kind of raving lunatic. <laughs> it's almost I'm, like. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> you know? I always like to imagine uh, the History Channel as like a guy that you know and you go over to his house and he just only has Hitler DVDs. Yeah. You're like, oh, fine. You only you only show these things when people come over. Yeah, I just yeah. I can't get enough. That's do you think, weird. Do you think the History Channel ever got excited in a weird sort of way? Where they're like, oh, we've just exhausted every Hitler angle ever, and then yeah. someone's like, we just figured out there were like twenty thousand more people he killed. Great. Oh, oh what a yeah. this is great news. Yeah. Now we can make another series. And they exhausted it again. They're like, well, we can find out how much Hitler memorabilia is worth if we bring it into a pawn shop. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> and then Hitler in space. Always in space. Hitler Wars, where it's just basically finding Hitler memorabilia. That was World War II. Oh, right. I guess that was was just World War II. Yes, in the Pacific, they were all called it the Hitler Wars. That happened. And it was just like confessionals with Rommel. Well, the fuel is very, very cranky today. (laughs) It's like... All the OTFs to camera. You, what, what's the sort of what's what is the history of the, uh, the the Farrelly brothers? What did you how did like what was how did you guys say? First of all, why do you want to direct a movie with another person? And second of all, uh, when did you guys start? Well, um, we um, um, we were both salesmen uh, near do wells. You know, uh, like just massive failures. In our lives, until our in, definitely into our mid twenties, I was a salesman for a shipping line in Boston, and my brother was, a, was selling round beach towels. He invented the <laughs> he and his buddies. Oh yeah, they invented the, the first round beach towels Sounds called fantastic. Sunspot. And uh, and the idea was that you know when the sun moves across the sky, rather than you know move your towel, you just move your body. So then you become a sundial. Turns out. People don't mind getting up, moving the towel. <laughs> no, Not the biggest stretch. deal. They want to stretch. Yeah. And uh, maybe they're going to the beach, so they just kind of shake it off a little bit. In any case, so we were both floundering. And Hard to I, fold, too, a round beach towel. Hard to fucking fold that up yes, and make it round. Yeah, but strange. you can but, fold yourself up like a burrito. But then we, the, the idea was, though, that the uh, that logos, you know, most logos are round. So you have Coke and you yeah, know, Budweiser sure. and all the things. You figured, you know, all these companies would jump on board. They didn't. <laughs> I am surprised. I actually think that the round beach towels was, is yeah. it just one of those things where it's like green ketchup? Who wants that? You I know? don't know. They patented it. It was called Sunspot. They actually got the patent. And, huh. and uh, well, you know, the other thing is they weren't great businessmen, my brother and his buddies. <laughs> you know, they weren't like the greatest businessmen in the world. So they were, you know, when you sleep till two and then get up and make like a couple calls and then go to the bar, you're not going to, you know, it's not going to like. You know, happen, and that's kind of you're basically cleaning up your throw up with your sunspot yes. surplus. Yeah. yeah, a lot of that. So um, uh, anyway, it didn't work out. But anyway, a, a, in my mid twenties, I got the notion to start to write. I wanted to write, and and I had the advantage of being a total you know failure at everything. So nobody stopped me basically. And I, and I remember I at a premiere once, I had a friend of mine named Jimmy McDonald come up to me, and he went to high school with me. He was top of the class. He was captain of the hockey team, went to Yale, played hockey at Yale. I think he was a captain of the hockey team there. He did everything. And he said, man, you are so lucky. You had the, you had the ability to fuck up. He goes, because <laughs> when you are a fuck up, the world is your oyster. You could do anything, and nobody's going to stop you. He said, like, if, I, if I, I'm on a path, I was like, 
kicking ass. And if I said all of a sudden, you know what, I'm going to like go get a, become a waiter and start writing stuff, they said, no, 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 Jenny, you're going to law school or business school. Come on, man. So you hmm. credit your success to failure. Absolutely. And I and I and I and I uh, a, a few years ago we did a. Uh, 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 what do you call it? Speech at uh, at a college. Uh, what's the end of the year speech? Uh, uh, commencement, commencement speech. Commencement yeah. speech. Thank you. And um, at Roger Williams uh, University in Rhode Island. And and first thing I said was, how many people here graduated with honors? Everybody stand up who did. Let's give me a huge round of applause. Like, all right, that's spectacular. Now I'm going to talk to the rest of you because <laughs> that's who we were. We're the 2.0 guys who are sitting there at the end of college thinking. What now? We're done. There's no way that we're going to recover from this. But you can, because now you have the world open to you. You can do anything. Like when I decided to write, you know, I remember telling my parents I was nervous about it, and they were just, go, go, good. You want to do <laughs> something. something. Yeah. I remember when I, okay, when I started college, first week of college, I met with my uh, advisor, and, and he goes, uh, so what's your major? I said, I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. He goes, well, you have good math boards. How about accounting? I said, uh, okay. <laughs> I majored in accounting for four years on, on that. Wow. And then I got out of college. My father said, so what now? I said, I, you know, I, don't really, I don't really know. He goes, you're 22 years old. You have no idea. When I was seven, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I became a doctor. You know nothing? I was like, I, you know. You know, I was one of those guys, who, and a lot of my friends are, who really didn't decide or find what they want to do till at least mid-20s, and sometimes like late-20s, early-30s, even even late-30s. Yeah. I have friends who woke up one day and said, God damn it, I, I wish I'd done this. And if they did go on at that point, you know, basically if you love something, you're going to do well at it. Right. Well, I think I think there's sort of a thing where, uh, you know, because particularly in stand-up, you know, most comics, with a few exceptions, don't really hit it until their 40s because you kind of spend your 20s fucking around, yeah. and then maybe in your 30s you decide what you want to do, and then you spend your 30s really honing that, and then that that takes like a decade sometimes to pay off. So it, it, it can Louis be a long... Yeah, know, of course. Louis C.K. is like, everybody's like, where's this guy been? You know, do you think he just got funny? No. How about Larry David? Larry David, yeah. you know, Seinfeld, he was in Dangerfield. His 40s. Dangerfield didn't make it till he was in his 50s. Exactly. But if you stick with it and you love what you're doing, I mean, it's, it, you know, I wrote for, uh, God, about 12 years before I ever got a movie made. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But I was selling screenplays, so I was making money, but nothing was getting made. But <clears throat> I was happy as a clam. I will honestly say I was as happy then as I am since I started getting movies made. Like, I was having a nice life. It right. wasn't all about, if your identity is your job and the degree of success in your job, you, you're probably not going to be that happy. you got to have an outside life, and I did. What was your outside life? Just fun? You know, I was single and, and at the time, and I was, uh, uh, you know, running around, going to parties, hanging out, playing golf, uh, just traveling. You know, i go, someone says, hey, you want to go to Miami this week? Yeah, let's go. I'd go there, you know. Because you're, you're writing, screenwriting, so you can basically just wherever you... Whatever you wanted to do. And then, and then you know, I met my wife toward the end of, you know, I want to clarify this because I didn't meet my wife after it happened. I met my wife a couple, few years before things hit. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, uh, it, it, but that was, I, I always look at that like, I think I wasn't ready for this to happen, honestly, because... If it had happened when I first came out here, oh man, I would have been doing blow and you know doing everything and just fucking up left and yeah. right. But I, but by the time I met my w wife, I was grounded. I had you know a good thing going, and then I could accept it. It's pretty interesting that uh, you know there are people who 
just make a very decent living just selling scripts to studios oh, yeah. that never get made. Like, you know, someone can have, you know, 10 scripts at all the different studios and you've never heard of them. But they but they just keep, you know, like one, I think once you're sort of in that system, then you then you can just keep churning out stuff to the yeah. studios. To a point, I have to say, at the time we finally got our first movie made, I was really nervous that somebody was going to wake up and say, "Hey, wait a second, these guys have been doing this for, year, for years. Nothing's getting made. Maybe we go to somebody else." Because we sold 15 screenplays in in nine years, and we were making a good living, but nothing was getting made. But the way it would happen is this: you'd, you'd write a screenplay, and like Eddie Murphy would, would read it. He said, "I love this. I want to do it." And then we'd meet with him and everything's this is unbelievable, it's getting made. And then he'd say, you know what? I'm gonna direct it. And then the studio would say, they they wouldn't say it, but you could see them like, oh no, we don't want him to direct it. Because <laughs> if he directs a movie, by the way, that's a year or two of his life. And he was the hottest guy in Hollywood at that time. He could make three movies in that time at least. And so they don't want him stopping to go direct a movie. So then they budget the movie that's probably like a seven million dollar movie and they budget fifty-five. Oh. You know, they're like, ah, no, you're going to need this, gonna need that. it's going to be 55. And then Eddie's like, oh, okay, he loses a little enthusiasm, he goes away. And then we find someone else for it. And they say, I want to do it, but I need this director. And that director is making a movie. And then we finally get that director interested. He said, yeah, I do it with that actress, and she's uh, that actor, and that actor is now making a movie. And it goes back and forth, and it's just like this, this nightmare where you cannot get everybody on the same page. And earlier you were saying, why would you direct a movie? Well, that's why. Because we knew we needed three things. You need a good screenplay, you need a star, and you need a director to make a movie. So if we cut out one of those, which is the director, yep. then we only have to get the star. We write the screenplay. So we started telling, they said, who's going to direct it? So we are. And nobody blinked. <laughs> Nobody questioned it. <laughs> like, That's so funny. I love the idea that the, that the whole movie making process is basically like a video game filled with side quests, where it's like acquire Eddie Murphy, yeah. acquire director, yeah. get fifty five million dollars. Yeah. And okay. by the way, you got to do it on your own. And I have the best agency in town. I'm with CAA. I've been with CAA since 80, 85 when I came out to LA. Oh wow. Richard Lovett, who runs CAA, and Adam Kane are, are my guys. And Richard, he was just made an agent at that time. And these guys are fantastic. They've done everything for me. They couldn't be better. I love CAA. However, you really have to... You, it's not just sitting back waiting for your agent to find. No, no. I think a lot of people get tricked, especially because especially the larger agencies... If you don't really have stuff for them to do, they won't do it. And I mean, it's not necessarily that they don't want to. It's just they're momentum machines. And so you have to keep feeding them. And like you cannot, you cannot rely on your no. agent to just do stuff because they are more in the business of making deals and fielding offers. And you kind of have to build the thing for them to then take it over. Or, you know, like I would be at a party and I'd talk to some other writer. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm up for a rewrite. What's the rewrite? This thing. And I'd call my agent. Hey, get me in for this rewrite. And then I'd read the script and you'd go in and do your pitch, or you're in a pitch meeting for a script, and you can see it's not, their eyes aren't, are starting to drift, and then you see some other script on their table, like, what's that? And they say, oh, that's this other thing we're developing, and I call my agent, say, hey, get me in for that one. <laughs> wow. Like, literally, like, you gotta hustle, you gotta find, you gotta keep it going. And, uh, you know, as good as my agents are, and they are incredible, especially once you've got that everything going, like, right now, you know, when, when you're trying to cast a movie, I can't call it actors. It's extremely, uh, you know, unprofessional. Yeah, you have to go through the representatives. You got to go through yeah. it. They know how to do it and who to do it with, and that's what. Well, it's almost like you, it's almost 
it's almost more unprofessional after you're successful. Before you're successful, you can kind of get away with like, oh, yeah. hey, man, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to do it? All right. But, but you know, because you're who you are, it's got to be, it's got to come to the agent. What are you doing calling my client? You oh, know? they get mad. Yeah. And even if you know them, like, you know, you know a guy, and, and I don't know that many guys, but, you know, because you make a movie, we live out of town, and, and you know, I don't, Unless I've made a movie with a guy, I don't really know them, you know, other actors. I, I don't know a lot of them, but the ones I do know, I'll call them, like, hey, you want to do this thing? And those call their agent and talk to them about it. And the agent will say, you're an idiot. You don't do that. You put them on the spot. Don't ever do that. You know, it's yeah, Because no one wants to be the bad guy. Because no. you don't want to be the, you know, as the performer, you don't want to be like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. Or yeah. it's a, the performers are always like, sure, yeah. I mean, whatever. And then, you know, the agents are like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, when I was single, um, I was a guy, one of these guys, I had a really thick skin. Like I could ask out a hundred girls and if 90, and I, 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 99 would say no. Uh, I, I'd be absolutely fine with it. Cause I knew that I played the numbers game. I knew like one was going to say yes. And, I, and it didn't, it didn't bother me. It really didn't. I was just like, Oh, okay. How many, do you want to go out? You know? And on and on and on. And uh, that's sort of what you have to do in this business. Like, I have a thick skin. Because every movie we've ever made, more people have passed than have accepted it. You know, starting from Dumb and Dumber, where 300 different actors passed on it. And I never thought for one minute, honestly, I never thought, oh, you know what, maybe this isn't very good. I, I just think, I, 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 now by the way, sometimes I've, it hasn't been very good. But in my head, I've convinced myself, <laughs> I've convinced myself, you know, they're wrong, I'm right, I can take it, and I move on, and I do that always. I, I take a real zen view of, of uh, casting. No matter how many people say no, I'm thinking, they're, they're idiots, they're dead wrong, keep plugging ahead. So you And so you're fine, like with critics and reviews, like none of that stuff bothers you, you just... Uh... Critics, okay, I'll be honest. I wish every time I was at a movie screening that at the end, the people erupted, picked me up on their shoulders and carried me out. <laughs> you know, I, 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 that's what my dream is. I, I don't like, I don't read reviews because I, if there's, if there's one bad review for, for nine good ones, and by the way, we never have that ratio. It's way worse. <laughs> but if there, if there was one, I, I, I you only remember that bad review. It's because it, it's like, they're right. Yeah, they're right. I'm an idiot. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting that you have the thick skin for the, yeah. the, the pitch process, but once it's already done. I get mad at them. I get mad because I'm like, fuck you, you motherfucker. Like, you know, you work so hard. You work so hard. Like, you know, okay, great example is The Three Stooges. Yeah. Okay, The Three Stooges is probably probably the highest degree of difficulty movie we've ever made. And when we made that movie, everybody was saying, how are you going to do this? It's not going to come, it's going to be really cheeseball, right? And we cast the three best actors of all time for this thing. You know, just, just and Christy Metopoulos, Sean Hayes, Will Sasso. Yeah. Oh, I, I know Will. You. Will's great. I promise you. You guys probably have not seen this movie. I saw it. I watched if, it three days ago. If the world... Everybody got a camera and got to make the Three Stooges movie. This would win. It would. These three guys are unbelievably good. Incredibly it's good. It's a fucking Stooges. They're, they're, they're Stooges bits you all over the you place. But we wrote all new material. It's great. No, it's no, all, I know. But it's, like, it's just in and, that void. And half of the reviews were off the charts. New York Times, LA Times, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, USA Today. Like, biggies. And they were like, this is so good. Like, you know, this is so hard, what they did. And mm. then half of them saying... What a piece of shit this is. And you, that guy, you want to pick up the phone and say, fuck you, you make the movie. <laughs> you tell me how that movie could have been a better movie. Like, you could say, I'm not a Stooge fan. I get that. Sure. But that Stoo those Stooge guys are, 
I, I will go to my grave believing that that was as good as that movie could be. Those three guys, and I'm giving them credit, like my fear always was that two of them would be incredibly good and one would be so-so. Well, wasn't the original casting like Sean Penn and Jim Carrey and Benicio Del Toro? Yeah. Or it was like it was some crazy yeah. collection of people. Yeah, and it was always like we, we had, and that's true, we went to all those people. We went to Russell Crowe, we went to Mel Gibson, we went to everybody. And, and the problem was... Like a lot of times making movies, the studios are like, I don't know about this, and they didn't want to pay that money. It was too much money. So we had to go off and make a movie for a price. You know? Sure. And so we cast. And by the way, in, in, again, it, like that's a good example. Sean, Sean Penn, okay, he's as good as it gets. Nobody would have been better. Nobody would have been better than Sean Hayes in that role. Nobody. Sean Hayes as Larry would beat Sean Penn. And Sean Penn's... You know, it's just that nobody could beat this guy. Well, there's a difference between going to see, oh, I want to go see what Sean Penn's doing with Larry, yeah. as opposed to, oh, I'm going to see a Stooges movie where, you know, like... Where this, when, just, that's Larry. When they're superstars, when they when they stunt cast, like, super, super, <clears throat> superstars, yeah. it's that sort of becomes the thing that the, the star of the movie yeah. rather than, like, you know, you can't... You, it's, you, you, you're never suspending your disbelief when you're watching Sean Penn, if you watch Sean Penn with Larry Harrier, the whole time you're like, that's Sean Penn. You know, yeah. like you're not really watching the movie Sean at Penn that point. Sean would have been insane. He's great. He's such a good actor. But honestly, I just can't imagine anybody being better. Christine Mentopoulos as Mo. nobody knew Christine Mentopoulos. Nobody. And nobody could have done better. You could have had uh, Mel Gibson. You could have had Russell Crowe. You could have had anybody. And, and Benicio, they're not going to beat Christine Mentopoulos. And by the way, the weird thing about Christine Mentopoulos not a Stooge fan. Oh, really? <laughs> no. He wasn't a guy who grew up like, oh, I'm not a Stooge. He's a guy who can act. Watched it, figured it out, came in, blew us away. And, you know, a real genius. Like, incredible. And Sasso, no, there's no better uh, Curly out there. Wow, yeah. those, those original... I was wondering if it would have been fun to it was 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 like doing films in the '30s like the internet now, or like oh, this is a fun new thing. I guess this was catching on, you know. <laughs> or did they did they really understand the the film industry when they were making it at the time? Did they really understand the impact that it was going to have, and you know, and and how important it was to the world? Or was it just like oh, this is just a fun new medium we're playing in? I don't know. I don't think they were getting paid to think to have that weight to it. Like it's like a lot of actors back then weren't getting the money that they get like, you know, now. You had to like have your own studio. No, to, but like, I think it money. was kind of like the old studio system is currently what like the YouTube system is now where you have like these like studios and like people are under contract with like you know, channels. Yeah. And they have like they're just working for that channel all the time and then it's like a studio system where like you're on an MGM contract now. You do you know, I want to throw 40 projects at you, and you do 40 projects. But there, it also, because there was nothing like that, whereas, you know, YouTube, we have TV, we have movies, we got this, right. we have that. Like, to see somebody on the big screen all of a sudden uh, must have made it feel magical yeah. and you must and, and, and godlike. You know, I think, I think the stars then were probably, uh, um, yeah. they, they seem more accessible now. And, and also, we see their flaws now. Yeah. Because everybody, you know, there's so many, you know, media outlets, they're killing them. Left and right, they just build them up to bring them down. Back yeah. then, I don't think they brought them down. They protected them. Except now for Fatty everyone's Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah everyone's oh, Fatty Arbuckle. Someone had to take it. Our society has become poor Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> um, Dumb and Dumber was one of those, is it, a movie that I think the only way 
that movie could have worked was the way that you made it because it, it always just sort of rode the edge of like, wait a minute, and like, oh, fuck, that's hilarious. Like, it, it so could have, in the wrong hands, that movie could not have worked. But you guys managed to, how do you take that kind of, uh, you know, almost over the edge kind of slapstick stuff, but then just keep it, keep it together and make it work? Um, well... <clears throat> Again, it was a good thing in the sense that we couldn't get it made for five years. And during those five years, we just kept get, the script kept getting better and better and better. And to the point where I had friends that you, who we'd go out at night, hang out. And, you know, when we come back to the apartment at two, two, three in the morning, they literally would say, Hey, Pete, would you read Dumb and Dumber to us? This is you know, <laughs> long ago. And because and, he hasn't heard it, this guy. And I would sit there and I'd read the whole thing for two, an hour and a <laughs> half. And that's the guy's honest truth. And they'd be sitting there toasting him up, listening to him, just dying, you know. And during every one of those readings, you hear something. Like you say, oh, this part's a little weak. I always, I find myself rushing through this area. There must be something wrong there. Yeah. And I would mark it. I'd say, go back to that. Look at that. Why am I, like, because you knew the good part. Oh, that's really interesting. I never like thought about when you're reading a script and you're like, oh, I'm rushing through this part. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that's, I tell people, read it out loud to people because you know the good stuff. The good stuff, you are so happy. You're savoring it. you got good material. You're just, oh, and then yeah. you get to a part and you know there's another good part coming up in a few pages and you want to get to it. And you're finding yourself. And so they go out the door and they come by and they sing, the lady says this and blah, blah, blah. You're rushing through it. That's a problem. If you're rushing through it, stop. Think about it. Figure it out. Well, also the other thing about uh, the other thing about Dumb and Dumber, which could have could have been catastrophic, was that was the well, that was the movie where Jim Carrey got like seven million dollars or something, right. right? So it's like he came off of Ace Ventura, Ace Ventura, this uh, mm-hmm. insane sleeper hit, and then all this. I mean, you know, people in movies always made money before, but that ushered in the era of people getting seven, ten, fifteen, twenty. Like Jim Carrey was sort of the first. Where they were really talking about that. Oh my God, this guy, this comedian. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they sort of, you know, the guy from In Living Color who seemingly came out of nowhere. Like, meanwhile, you the know, white he's guy. Yeah. <laughs> me- meanwhile, he's been, you know, he's the been, guy from Duck Factory. <laughs> Duck Factory. Yeah. yeah. The guy who's actually been around at that point for over ten years. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, you know, when a when a movie gets that kind of like, oh, now there's big money. Everyone, you know, it goes under a microscope, and it still worked. Okay, well that that's an interesting story because that movie, after five years, Richard Lovett, my agent, yeah. gave me the best advice I ever got. He said, uh, Pete, okay, you keep telling, you're sending it out to people, and you're saying we're trying to get the movie made. He goes, for now on, when you send it out, you say we're making the movie because oh. when, when the movie's getting made, they perk up. They want it. They don't want to miss it. If you say we're trying to get it made, they're thinking, "Oh, you need me to get it made." They, they, everybody thinks so little of themselves. They're thinking, <laughs> "If you need me to get it made, it must be a piece of shit." But what do what do you say for what we're going to make this movie? And they go, "Where?" That's what I said. I said, "So how can I say I'm making the movie?" He goes, "Just you're making the movie." I said, "How? how, how what does that mean?" He goes, "Do you have ten grand? I got like eight. He goes, <laughs> make it for eight grand. Just make the movie. It's been done. You do it for eight grand. So in your head, you're making the movie. You're not lying. You're telling them we're making it. And when we started saying, hey, look, it, we're making this movie, all of a sudden people started paying attention. That's Mostly, crazy. Yeah, and the studios, we had these guys who uh, were the Pettis brothers uh, in Washington, D.C., who, who had financed a couple of the uh, Coen brothers' early movies. We sent it to them, and, and they read it, and they were great guys, and they said, yeah, well, you know what? We'll give you 100 grand. And we're like, oh, my God, it's a movie now. It's a real movie, 100 grand. It's, like, it's a big, big movie now. And uh, so we had 100 grand, and then New Line read it, and they knew they, they said, 
yeah, we'll give you a million. And we called the Pettises. We were like, we felt horrible because the Pettises got in the ball rolling. We were yeah. like, hey, guys, these guys are going to give us a million. I don't know what to do here. They go, God bless. Go ahead. Great. Oh, wow. They couldn't have been cooler. Nicest guys in the world. But so now we had a million bucks to make the movie. We were going to do a movie. Then Jim Carrey read it, right? And the budget got up to, uh, well, they offered Jim Carrey. He was, he had, uh, yeah, had made Ace Ventura, but it wasn't out yet. And they offered him like, I remember it was like 200 grand to do the movie. And Jim said, No, I, got, I want 300 grand. <laughs> and uh, they said, uh, No, no, it's 200 or nothing. And then the uh, Ace opened and uh, it did, it was number one. So and, then he gets, then he gets a call back. Then it, then Nick Stevens at UTA gets yeah. the call, who was his agent, yeah. got, uh, uh, call, gets the call and go, Okay, that 200, I think that's going to have to be 7 million. No, this is what happened, exactly. He goes, uh, they call, and they say, okay, okay, we'll give you the 300. He goes, no, 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 I want 500. Your movie's number one, we want 500 now. They say, you're not getting 500, we'll give you 400. No, we want 500. The ne next week, the movie's still number one. Okay, I'll give you five, no, I want 750. <laughs> four weeks in a row, that movie, four weeks in a row, that movie was number one, and, and finally, it was seven million, and that's exactly what happened. They could have had them way cheaper, but they kept coming just short, and, and his agents, to their credit, said, no, 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 we're holding off. And then after the fourth week, all of a sudden, it's seven. He got seven, the movie was made for 16. Oh. oh my God! Yeah. yeah, and by the way, they didn't want Jeff Daniels. We wanted. I love Jeff Daniels. Yeah. Jeff Daniels is a god, and I, and one of my all-time favorite movies is uh, uh, something wild. Mm -hmm. something oh yeah, wild Melanie Griffith. A, it's yeah. a masterpiece. It's a total masterpiece. It's the movie I've seen more than any movie in the world. It's Jonathan Demme, and it's just incredible. It's Ray Liotta's first movie, I believe. And Melanie, and, and it's just a spectacular movie. So I knew how good he was from that movie. I'd seen him in other things, but we said, we want him. They said, no, 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 no. we got to get a comedic actor. And we're like, what does that even mean? Like, he's a great actor. He's not writing it. He, he, yeah. he, he, he can do anything. And they said, no, we don't. Finally, we got Jim Carrey. He said, Jim, you gotta, you got to realize this is the guy. Jim Rell with him. He said, no, that's my guy. I want him. So he said, no, Jim Bacta said, we want Jeff Daniels. And uh, at that point, the studio, I, listen, I want to say they offered him like 50 grand to do the movie. And knowing Jim's getting seven, and he took it. Oh, what? Said, okay, I'll do that. He just, they were just trying to scare him away, and he just, no, fucking do it. But he got it back end. He ended up seeing money, you know, down the road, a lot well, of money. Well, Je Jeff yeah. Daniels seems like one of those guys that's just... He's an actor. He likes to work. He likes to act. Like he, you know, and then he yeah. did, and then he disappeared into the Midwest and opened a theater. Yeah. It's like he just loves the craft of acting and he loves being, you know, and he's he's I don't think I've ever like if you said uh Jeff Daniels to someone, I can't imagine anyone going, "Fuck that guy." They'd be like, "He's fucking cool." Like he just seems to do what yeah. he wants to do. And that that's that's very that's a very commendable path. Yeah, and when we hired him again, we had never directed anything, and I and I feel like I've told this story a lot, but we hadn't directed a commercial, a video, nothing, and been on a movie set except for one day. David Zucker let me on a set, and I just kind of <laughs> hung in the background. Which movie? Uh, it was one of the Naked Gun movies. Okay. And um, um, so uh, when we hired him, we had a talk. We said, "Hey, listen." Um, um, when we get to the toilet scene, you're going to do it, right? Because we were afraid, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm in. And then when you get to the toilet scene, he's like, I I'm not doing that. Because no, that was kind of like at the time, nobody had done anything like that. And it was it was more embarrassing than it would be today. And uh, he said, no, I'm going to do it. And he did do it, to his credit. He did everything we asked. But I remember on the set, 
He's a great guy. He's very quiet. Nothing like his character. He just sits there. He's, he's a sweet guy, nice guy, but kind of quiet. He sits and reads books on the, on the uh, sidelines. And we'd be sitting there uh, setting up a shot, and I'd look over at him, and he'd see, like, we, we know nothing. <laughs> We're like, I, I'm asking, like, the guy says, what lens do you want? I said, I, I don't know. Put a lens in. Let me like. <laughs> and I'm looking at the, through the monitor. I said, yeah, okay, what, what, what lens would you put in to make the people look closer? And they changed lenses. I said, yeah, that's the lens. <laughs> and he would look up. He'd be reading a book, and he'd look up and just kind of give me like a little eye roll, like, holy shit, what the hell am I, did I get into? But he never, ever so said a he's word. He's reading like being in nothingness? Uh, all right, now that. <laughs> oh, he, was, he was the greatest. What is Bobby doing this whole time while you're, while you're swapping out lenses? No, we're, we're, we're discussing it. Well, the one thing that, that we did. Those people look closer? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do they look closer to you? Yeah, they are. They are closer. And by the way, literally the week before um, we were making it, I was at a dinner. And there was a director sitting next to me, and I'm trying to remember who it was. He'd done a few movies, and and he said, he said, now listen, just remember, I, I, I said I'm starting this movie next week. It's just get a lot of coverage, whatever you do, get a lot of coverage. I said, what, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he, called his, he called his wife over, who was down the table. He said, come here, tell, tell her what you just told me. I said, what? What did I say? He said, I told him to get coverage. And what did you say? Well, what's coverage? I don't know. What's coverage? He goes, you all do Different angles, you know, try to get a lot of different angles so you can cut it. And say, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's what, oh, you call that coverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call that angling. Yeah, I just yeah, have my yeah. own vocabulary. Oh, okay, Mr. More Fancy shots. Pants with yeah. coverage. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't go to film school. But we did, what we did do is when we got, when we started that movie, we we were so honest with everybody except for the studio. The studio, we didn't tell them we don't know shit. But the DP, the director of photography, the first AD, everybody on the set, the grips, the, everybody down the road. So guys, we don't know what we're doing, but we wrote the script and we know what we're going to get for performance, but we need your technical help. We don't know shit. So, and we didn't pretend to know shit. Like and everybody was very helpful because we weren't like the guys trying to act like we knew what we do what we were doing and we weren't. Then they let you fail, but we were just like guys. We're desperate for your help here because we don't know, you know, really the first thing about doing this. So what yeah. happened? So the movie, the movie actually is a is a hit. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, this movie, this first movie that you've directed is, is a hit, and all. And then, so then, what does that feel like? Or what do you? Is it is it weird that you know all of a sudden you can do? Pretty much anything you want well, when, when you've been swimming upstream for so long? It, it's an odd feeling because I'd been doing it for so long. It was nine years in L.A. before we got the movie made. Uh, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, like this great party feeling. It was more relief. It was relief. It was like, thank God, it finally happened. And it, in fact, in my entire career, I've never had a what we call, you know, a pop the champagne moment. <laughs> because that movie opened at $17 million, which is good. But it could fall off the next week. You know, yeah. it could drop off, and you might end up making thirty-five. Who knows? You don't know. And then the next week, it was still number one. It made sixteen. And the next week, it was fourteen. And thirteen. You know, it's one of those things that hung around, and then all of a sudden, it's out six weeks, and you realize one day, like, hey, it's a hit. Same thing with something about Mary. You know, all our movies, we've never had that $50 million opening where you just, you know, I, I'd love to have that someday. <laughs> where you're popping champagne and you know it's a smash hit. Yeah. Never had it. We've had it. They've all been nail biters. All been nail biters. So um, it's more it's more relief than anything. It, it really was. But, but it also was perceived as a, you know, a Jim Carrey movie. 
And it was a Jim Carrey movie. It wasn't just perceived, but they we were nothing. So it wasn't like we were getting offered all these things afterwards. We had to scramble around again. Oh, that's really interesting. They they basically credited Jim. Absolutely. You know, mm. and and you know, they were we were just the first time guys. It didn't mean anything. And in fact, our second movie completely bombed. Uh, Kingpin. It did twenty five million. That's so good. Such a good movie. <laughs> that bombed. Yeah, bombed. Does it? But that movie, like today, still so today, good. you know, because my my dad was a professional bowler. Uh -huh. And so people always say, like, what does your dad think of Kingpin? I go, well, my dad likes the movie, but he always says to me, like, well, it's a cute movie, but um, I used to hustle. That's not really how it went down. I'm like, yeah, Dad, I know. The Amish don't bowl on the tour. Like, what are you fucking thinking? Where are you going to suspend your disbelief? But Kingpin is another one of those movies, even though it may not. I, then that's surprising to me to know that because I just assumed, like, oh, Kingpin, everyone knows Kingpin. Everyone, like, you know, Bill Murray, Woody Harrell, like, everyone, there's everyone. A, and there's a lot of. By the way, it was a painful thing because a week beforehand, the studio called, it was MGM, they called, they said, it's going to do 18 the opening weekend. We're like, awesome, spectacular. And then about three days before that, four days before it opened, they said, yeah, it looks more like 13. I thought, oh, okay, well, that's still good, you know. And then the day it opened, they said, it's going to do eight. And then it did five. Oh, wow. It did five opening weekend. It did 1.6 or 7 the first night. It did five. And then the next morning, first of all, you're, devastated because you never see it coming you love the movie it, it seems so good and yet all of a sudden it's a flop and the reviews weren't great uh you know you got great reviews from uh siskel and ebert they saved the day on sunday we're sitting there got bad reviews didn't open did and they gave us a review it was on sunday morning and it, they said this is like this is why you get into the business for movies like this. We laughed so hard, and they looked in the camera and said, guys, the guys who made this movie, I'm talking to you. Thank you. Thank oh, you for wow. this movie. I swear to God, it was the only thing that kept me going for six months. It oh was my God. so painful. And that, by the way, the morning it opens, you get the phone call from the producer or the studio, and I'm like, well, guys, you know, it, it opened during uh, the, uh, it was during the uh, Olympics, 98. And I said, guys, well, what do you expect? You open during the Olympics and you have no ads on the Olympics because they had no ads on the, they said, well, that's not your crowd. I was like, what? <laughs> the, world? the world's not our crowd? <laughs> so um, I said, guys, you know, what do you expect? You know, you didn't have ads. He goes, Pete, Pete, Peter, hey, look inside. It didn't work. Oh, it that's... didn't work. Oh. Like, okay, thank you. Bye. That's fucked up. Yeah. But did, did it ever end up ultimately making it money? Monster hit on DVD and, uh, you know, uh, on video. It was the first movie ever to be number one on video four weeks in a row after never being in the top three. It was fifth its first week, and it didn't get any better than that. Did you call and that guy back and go, hey, I just looked inside, and it says, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, just, it did great. And, and to this day, like, I was out with people... One time, a couple years ago, and they were talking about like Kingpin, and I said, "How much do you think it made?" And there was like four people at dinner, and they all bet. I don't know, 160, 180, 190, yeah. <laughs> 220. No, 25 total. Jeez. You know, people forget wow. that it didn't do well. So ultimately, you know, as an artist, if you, if that's what we are, then you know, the one thing you want is to be seen. You want people to see what you do. And so everyone saw it. So, you know... It's, it's like It was a cultural hit, even if yeah, it didn't yeah. make $200 million. But, guys, I just feel like that movie is part of pop culture. It's not, mm. it's not, it's not a movie that made $25 million and disappeared. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's the movie... Where uh, with where people go and you know they always they always say the same thing when they talk about the Kingpin they're like Kingpin, oh, fucking Bill Murray you know mm -hmm. like they always you've literally worked with pretty much everyone 
or at least most of the people that a comedy nerd would want to work with. You know, like like Bill. What was how was Bill? How was Bill Murray? Okay, this is Bill Murray. He is, um, he is. When you're around Bill Murray, you're like, you can't believe how lucky you are to be around Bill Murray. You're right. like, oh my god. I'm like, this guy is like, he is the funniest man on the planet, or definitely in the top three. And and the energy you get from him is so alive and you know real. And and this sense of like this is spectacular. I can't believe he's here. And when he leaves, you're so relieved. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's because he there's an energy around him that is so strong, like that is so like you know palpable, like you know uh, that it, it is like you got to be on your game around him because you know he he calls you. Wait, what does what does that mean, Pete? Well, no, I didn't say anything. You know? <laughs> no, like, no, Pete, Pete. I think. He just what do you think something. it means, Bill? Yeah. What, 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 what is that, Pete? You know, he'll call you on everything in the best way. By the way, I love Bill Murray, and uh, he he is a. Uh, but he, he, this is another thing. Bill's blue collar. He's a blue collar guy. Loves crews. Loves the crew. Yeah. He loves the crew. He loves everybody who works on a movie. He he treats them like brothers and sisters because that's where he came from. He's that guy. He's a blue collar guy from Chicago, but he can't stand suits. So producers and its studio executives to him are worthless. He doesn't like a guy who shows up on the set in a coat and tie, and that guy should be afraid because Bill Bill is. He doesn't like he, you know. It's, it goes right down to Caddyshack. You know, he's the caddy. You know, he's the guy working on the course. He's not the club member. And the guy when the club member shows up, there's just you can just see Bill is not going to kiss anybody's ass. Yeah. And so that's where you know you get stories about Bill Murray being difficult. Well, that's not. I never had one bad moment with Bill Murray. He was couldn't have been. He's difficult bad. if you're a suit and you're not yeah. a comedy person and you're telling him how to do comedy. Exactly. That's probably when he's difficult. Yes, exactly. But by the way, this is the other thing he did. The first day he shows up. We give him the sides, you know, which are the pages that you get every day that we're going to shoot that day. And he shows up in the set, and I said, here you go, here are your sides. And he, he looked, flipped through them, like, in a second. Eh, okay. Yeah, all right. And he throws it on the floor. He goes, I get it. Let me run with it. And he never said one word that was scripted, and it was ten <laughs> times better. <laughs> ten times better than anything we had written. And by the way, that's your worst nightmare, that an actor wants to take it upon themselves to make it better. We let them do that after we do what's scripted. Sure. Yeah. We, we always say, this is what I say, I say, let's do what's scripted, and then let's wing it. Let's yeah. go off page, let's find stuff. That's the thing, too. If you ever read the shooting script for Ghostbusters, all of the great Bill Murray lines aren't in the script. Because oh, he yeah. came up with all of them. Oh, yeah. Like Everything. Every fucking great line. You, you know, think. gravy trails, biscuit wheels. You're like, where the hell did he get this? You know, just looking at the girl like, hi, not you, not you. 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 That's, just, you know, that's not scripted. None of this is scripted. And it's way funnier than we could have ever done. So there's like a feeling when you're with Bill, it's like a... It's a joyful experience, but and you're so alive for that time when you're with him. But it's it, it takes all your energy when he's uh, when he's like improving in a scene or just improving his lines. Does he stay within it enough for like the other actors like Woody Harrelson to be able to respond to properly, or oh, do yeah. they have to then go off script? Uh, they might have to go off a bit, but basically he's keeping. He's not changing who that guy is. Yeah, he's getting it to the thing, and and he makes them better because now there was a lot of times if you're not re responding to something scripted, it, it's way more real. You know, so they, even though it's the same tone, same direction, 
it's funnier. It, it helps them. It absolutely uh, helps them. And by the way, that's the, uh, the other thing. Loves actors. Bill loves actors. He, he, he respects actors. He gives them a lot of rope, and he helps them out. You know, he's hmm. very helpful. He's just He just doesn't like suits. If a guy shows up with a suit, I just literally say to him, you shouldn't be here. You know, <laughs> Bill, Bill, Bill's here today. Oh, Bill's not going to like this. Bill, Bill is not going to like you. Yeah. Why? What did I do? I said, you got a tie on, man. He's going to fucking flip out. Well, that's probably you. why he just has an answering machine yeah, or, you yeah. know, like a voicemail service where you just pitch him stuff that yeah. you want him to do. Uh, I, I loved. Uh, I saw an extended version of Kingpin where uh, there you showed there was more scenes showing how much of a scumbag uh, Woody Harrelson's character was. Yeah. Uh, what was the like? Was it a time thing to cut those out? Like yeah, like the the money that the the money in the um the uh, at the, at the, the market convenience store. Yeah, like that that's that was like I was seeing that scene. I was like, oh, like it. It's such a simple thing that like you understand him so quickly at this point. Like what what where he's gotten to, what he's become. And, like, I was wondering, like, was it a time thing that cut it out, or was it just kind of a... No, it was time thing, because, you know, it's a funny thing. It's like your, it's like your song, you know, the Hard and Firm song. And the truth of the matter is this. That was a spectacular thing, and when you play it on its own, everybody's like, you'd say, why would you ever cut that? Well, the reason it was cut is because it came about eight minutes from the end of the movie, and at that point, the audience has got this feeling like we're winding it down, and then when you start a mu big musical number out of nowhere... They're like, you're kidding me. Not, like, if, that, if we had placed that, I learned after we did this, if we had placed that in the first act or beginning of the second act, that would have flown. That would have been great. But that's what happens. Like you have so many jokes and, and you're getting pressure from the studio to take it down because they want it shorter. You know, like our comedies run a little longer, like most of them. Like Kingpin and Dumb and Dumber, those are hour 48. Yeah, and they don't feel like it. You would expect 90 minutes from those kind of comedies. So we were already adding stuff. But the studio's like, no, no, this this is too long for a comedy. So you find them out. Like, I remember there was one scene in that movie that just bugged me. I cut. I'm mad at myself for cutting, which was, um, you know, there's the thing early on where uh, uh, Woody's flossing. Yeah. And, and Randy says, hey, what are you doing, Mr. Mr. Munson? He says, flossing. He says, flossing? Where did I get Munson from? He goes, no, 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 no. I, my name's Munson, but what I'm doing is flossing. And that stayed. But later on, we had a scene where uh, right before the big match, Woody's throwing up in the bathroom. And, and Randy, you know, Randy comes in and he says, what you doing, Mr. Munson? He goes, barfing. He goes, where do I keep getting Munson from? <laughs> and and uh, we cut it because it was at the very end. Again, it was at the very end. And it just felt, and I remember the studio saying, enough, get on with the bowling tournament, yeah. you know. But I, I kicked myself that I, I caved on that one. <laughs> and then uh, uh, something about Mary, is it? When you're do, when you're doing that movie, was it? Because uh, uh, that really felt like okay, how how much can we get away with, and still leave in leave in the movie? Yeah, you know, when we wrote that, we thought we thought it was you know we love it. If uh, like you know everything we've written, you know, it's like it, 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 you know I know they haven't all been great, by the way, but I <laughs> but to us they they were. It's like an artist. It's like you know like you look at somebody who does does a painting and you say, what's your favorite painting? It's like well that was. At that time in my life, I really wanted to do that. You know, you don't want to do the same thing over and over. But in any case, when we wrote that thing, we thought, this is really hilarious. But we weren't sure if it would work because nobody had ever pushed it that way. You know, with the hair gel, for instance. Yeah. And the studio definitely didn't think it worked. They said, you can't do that. That's, that's NC-17. You're not going to do that. So no, 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 let's try it because we believe that, you know, that if it's for humor... 
it's R, and if it's for titillation, it's, it's NC-17. We think we get through it. So it was very, very hard to make. And it, but it, but it, the great moment that we had there was that nobody was doing that. Mm-hmm. Nobody was doing that. So that's why we really snuck up on people, and that's what humor is. You know, when you surprise them, and they're thinking you're going this way, and you go that way. You know, and you can't do that so much anymore. And that's why we kind of did get away that's from That's so that. funny to me, because that's so funny that they were nervous about that, because once the movie hit, and did well. I remember. Oh, maybe it was when the maybe it was when the uh, the DVD came out or the VHS at that time. Well, I guess DVDs that yeah. time too. Um, but as part of the ad campaign, they were like, and it'll have you asking the question, "What's that in her hair?" Yeah. And all of the spots advertising it had had the hair. Had the hair. And so about that hair. So it's yeah. So it's really funny that they you know. I mean, again, it's just you know they, the studios they're they're capitalists. So if they go, oh, it worked. All right, now let's do all cum hair jokes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and by the way, that's where we get the gross out thing, which was. Always troubling to us. I hate that term "gross out," guys, because uh, it wasn't funny because it was gross. It was, you know, I've seen gross. Like there are movies where people are just gross, and you're like, that was funny because it was an elaborate setup that led to that. You know, he hadn't seen the girl in 17 years. You know, his friend talks to him into jerking off. Yeah. He, he loses the thing, which is like a very Seinfeldian <laughs> thing. Like, where the hell did that go? What happened to it? It ends up in up. his ear. George, where's the cum? Did you see where the cum went? Sorry, I just found some cum yeah. in my apartment. Exactly. It ends up in his ear. Then she's like, what is it? He comes up with the idea. It's here, Joe. Then you cut to later. It's an elaborate thing. It's not just gross. And to it's to for critics to simplify it and say, oh, it's gross out comedy, it's like, you don't understand comedy. It's it's so much more than Well, that. the mechanism of it wasn't just to show cum. The no. mechanism was he really likes this girl and he wants the date to go well and something horribly awkward happens and he still has to go on the date and he doesn't want to ruin it. I mean, like, that's it, that, that takes it out of gross and makes it really human. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was, it was, that, it, it, it was, uh, uh, we did it because we thought it was funny, and and ultimately it worked out. But by the way, we shot it two different ways because Cameron Diaz said, "I don't know. What if this doesn't work? What if it isn't funny?" But and we had to agree that could happen because it could it could end the movie. The 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 girls, women in the audience say, "Ah, oh, Jesus, that's horrible." And the guys would be grossed out when it's in her hair. That was a possibility. When we tested it, that didn't happen. People went through the roof. They were howling, and uh, but we shot it two ways. We shot it with the hair gel, and then we shot it. So you could have gotten around that scene if it didn't work. And that was just to protect Cameron because we didn't want her walking down the street and have people yell like, hey, come ahead, you know, <laughs> 15 hey, years. come ahead. Yeah. <laughs> what was the, uh, what was the, um, uh, like, getting uh, Jonathan Richman in as the kind of the narrator? Jonathan Because uh, he appeared in Kingpin. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a huge Jonathan Richman fan. And uh, he grew up, you know, he's from Massachusetts. And when I was a kid, he used to listen to WVBF and, uh, Jonathan Richmond, the modern lovers they would play, yeah. and it was just spectacular. I always liked him. So when he came to L.A., uh, I would always go see him. And uh, uh, I really liked him, and we had put him in Kingpin. And then we were watching him at a show, and we had just written something about Mary. I was with my brother, and he played a song in the show. We said, hey, that would be perfect for something about Mary. It was like, I can't remember the song, but it was something that pertained to the movie. And then he played another one that did. We said, hey, that's a good one, too, for this scene. And then my brother said, hey, wait a second. You know what? Let's pull the Cat Baloo thing. You know, do you remember Cat Baloo? They had Stubby K and Nat King Cole. He popping in yeah. occasionally just to, you know, fill you in. Well, like, Greek well, co- they, like a Greek chorus, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they went to the store. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Greece, that, that would be the technical term. Yes, a Greek chorus. <laughs> but, but, but also, <laughs> it also, uh, it, 
it just it ga- it gave it gave that movie such a fresh spine. Yeah. And something like really fun to keep going back to, just like wraparounds. I don't know. It was a really all the elements of that. All the elements of that were so much fun. And you, you know, you've you guys clearly have an eye for. You know, you caught Jim Carrey at the beginning of his thing. You caught Ben Stiller right before. Like that was that was kind of right around yeah. when Ben Stiller broke. Because before that, he was a funny guy that some people remembered from the Ben Stiller show. And he was but doing he was, like small indie, he was like doing, dark indie movies. Well, not too. just dark indie movies, but he would like he popped up in Happy Gilmore for a minute. Yeah, like yeah. you know, he was heavyweights. Like, yeah, yeah, he would just he was the he was a funny guy that would pop up in movies, but ha- was not really a star. An, a star at that yeah. point. By the way, you know who it came down to for that movie uh, for ben, for Ben Stiller's role it came down to Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson. John Stewart. Oh shit! Oh, wow. John Stewart was a very, very, very close to being the guy. He was spectacular. Very close to oh, being. Oh man, him. I'm gonna jerk yeah. off before I go on this date, man. Yeah. That's my own Wilson. <laughs> yeah. That's my John Stewart. Yeah. Hey, welcome to the Daily Show, mm-hmm. man. That was not as good as your own Wilson. History leads you to believe <laughs> <laughs> jerking off in the movie, yeah. Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but um, uh, what, what were we saying right before that? I wanted to tell you something. Uh, we're talking about saying? Greek choruses. Um, we're oh, ta- um, yeah. The first time we tested that movie, uh, I was sitting behind a row of uh, uh, African-American women. They were sitting right in front of me. They were all like 21, 22 years old. And it starts with Jonathan Richmond in the tree. You pan along, and he's starting to sing this song. And this girl, and I was sitting there all nervous. You know, how's this going to go? And this woman looks at her friend, and she goes, this is Bullshit! <laughs> 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 I, God, I was like, okay, well, we're going to have to cut Jonathan. Yeah. And then the next time he came up, she kind of giggles. <laughs> and by the la- end, every time he comes up, ah, she loved it. And I, that, <laughs> that woman wanted over, you know, I was I literally going to cut the thing. I thought, okay, this isn't working right away. You know, this is a nightmare. When they're filling out the <laughs> forms, it's like, uh, you know, Excellent, good, fair, unsatisfactory. This is bullshit yeah, yeah. in all caps. Wraps around yeah. the page. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, movie forty three. Yes, we should talk about for a minute. That's a good idea. Now I knew about this movie because Charlie Wessler right. reached out a few. It was quite a few years ago yeah. now and said, you know, we're going to do this like sketch movie. And I pitched him a couple ideas, and, it, and nothing ever worked out. But but I've been aware of it for a really long time, so I'm glad that it finally got made. But you guys got. Huge people. Well, you know, it's an interesting movie because it, it wasn't shot. It's a six million dollar budget, so we we didn't have a lot of dough, and we, and Charlie wanted all these superstars, which who we eventually got. So the way he would do it, and the way he got them, by the way, because Charlie is the guy who could call actors. He actually knows everybody in town. He's sort of like a, a Zelig type character. Yeah. He he was a PA on Empire uh, uh, Strikes Back. You know he he's been around forever. He knows everybody. So he literally would call people like Richard Gere and say, "Hey Richard, we're doing this like sketch movie. Uh, you want to be in? I'll send you a thing." And Richard would read, "I'd love to, but I, I'm I'm working for the next year." He goes, "Well, when are you available?" He goes, a "Year from April." He goes, "We'll wait, and we'll go to you." And he did that. He shot three days here, closed down for six months. Three days there, because it was all different directors, all different crews, all different actors, and it took three and a half years to make the movie. By the way, that's another thing that the uh, wow. that the uh, New York Post woman twisted. This movie's been on the shelf for three and a half years. Oh, wow. that sucks. That's production. No, it took yeah. three and a half years to make uh, the movie. If it makes you feel any better, yeah. she's probably really unhappy in life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, why do I feel better yeah. about it? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And you got um, James Gunn is one of the directors yeah. there and there. Yeah, yeah. 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 just sensational people, but... Uh, 
Uh, this is the hardest R movie you will see this year, without question. It, it is, like people say, well, do you have, like, you know, it's a Charlie Wessler movie. It was his baby. I, I directed two of the shorts. There are 15 different directors. There's a bunch of different writers, all different actors. And um, but we really, really push it. And people are like, "Do you have a little like the heart that you have in there?" It's no, no heart. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no heart at all. Um, it's just for laughs. It's like what you'd see on Funny or Die, except there's no, you know, there's a ceiling on Funny. Well, or there's Die. A, but, mm. but like Kentucky Fried Movie, yeah. Amazon Women on the Moon, like yeah. it's, it's a sketch yeah. movie. It's the thing that the, that the Zucker Brothers did so beautifully. And then no one, I can't think of any other really no. big sketch movies since the since the early eighties. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, oh, sure. sorry, oh, well, there there's been like like elements of sketch, like you know, UHF is kind of a sketch yes, movie, exactly. uh, sort of. Um, but that at least that had brain a, candy. Uh, but brain candy and UHFs definitely like there was still a through line. Yeah, you well, know? there is a through line in this too. Oh, and there is. Yes, there is because actually, I we tested, my comment. No, we tested it without the through line. We did it both ways. We tested it with just the shorts, and you can't do it today. It, it, it's to, you know our the world's attention spans have have shrunk. And basically, if you're an hour and five minutes into a movie and you're starting a new short, people are looking at their watches like, do I want to start another one? Yeah, because they can reset. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so what we do is we have this uh, thing where where uh, uh, Dennis Quaid is a down and out producer, and he's pitching these projects to a studio head. Uh, Greg Kinnear and Common, mm-hmm. and, and as he's going along, Seth MacFarlane's in there as well, by the way, at the studio. And there's these things that he runs into. But as he starts, he starts pitching these projects that are people, you know, other writers have written that he's he's representing, and he starts pitching them. And as it goes on, he starts getting more and more desperate, so that you want to see what he's going to do. He starts getting crazy oh, that's toward great. the end, and that's the sto- the through line that pulls you along. Okay, yeah. Uh, awesome. And then when does the movie come out? It comes out uh, Friday. Friday. Okay, this yeah. Friday. The What date is that? The 25th? 25th. Yeah. Yes. Friday and by the, 20... the way, just so to be clear, it's going to get about a four on Rotten Tomatoes because it is so... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, seriously. It is so outrageous. Like, it is... Uh, uh, this is an odd movie to test. When we tested it, it, did, it didn't test well. It did like 55 or 60, which is not great. It's not, you know... But the 55 or 60 who loved it, they were carrying us out of the theater. They literally, like, I've never come out of a theater where you had, like, 40 people hanging around. And they're coming up like, hey, dude, I just want to tell you, you can't cut this part. you got to keep this. This is fucking mm-hmm. hilarious. you know. And then other people would be like, that's ridiculous. It's, you know, it's, it's so pushed that it's not going to be for everybody. And, and mainly it's not going to be for, for critics. They're not going to, they're, they're going to just not embrace a movie like this. But I promise you guys... Like going back to something about Mary, you will get a massive kick out of this thing. It's really a very, very funny movie. Anybody in their teens, twenties, thirties, forties, and as I say, anybody who still smokes weed in their fifties should It's for those people. Well, I, I, I'm excited to see the movie, and I, I, I just because I've been aware of it for so long, and I, I'm so excited to see like how it, it panned out. But you've always been such a nice guy. Like you're a guy that. And someone else said, oh, yeah, yeah, Pete just has a mind like this. But, you know, I met you when you came on to promote something about Mariana Radio Station. And then, like, six years later, I ran into you. And you're like, hey, Chris, how's it going? Remember, we did the radio thing. It's me, Pete. Like, you were telling me, you were explaining to me who you were. I'm like, no, Pete, I know who you are. I am surprised that you remember me. Okay, this is the guy's honest truth. I actually do not have a good brain, like, for that. My wife is, she's the brain. Whenever we go anywhere, she, I'm like, who's this, who's this, who's this, who's this? 
that was a particularly memorable interview that you guys did. I remember you from that. I remember hanging up saying, who are those guys? They're funny fuckers. <laughs> like, we had a lot of laughs on that interview. That was fun. That's why I remember that. Because okay. I really am not that good at that. I, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> because I was I was dating a girl and at the time who was... Uh, who was friends with Gary Valentine, who yeah. I also knew from doing stand-up, who's Kevin James's brother, right. and we were at a party, like a New Year's Eve party or something at Kevin's house, and you were there. Uh -huh. And that was like six years after that, five years after that interview, and that's when you remembered me. And I remember yeah. saying to my girlfriend at the time, like, how the fuck does he remember? There's like one <laughs> interview that he must have done out of a million. Yeah, but I also knew you before that, because you used to host a show, a TV show, I right? did, yeah. Yeah, and I remembered you from that. Like, when I when we did the radio thing, I mean, you're the Chris Hardwick who did, what was the show you did? It was like, a, it was a dating show? It was uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, singled out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I remembered you for that. So uh, yeah. yes, we go way back. It's so, but it's always you know, it, I, it there really is something about this business where, you know, it's a long business. Hopefully, you have a long yeah. career, and the people that are nice to work with. You always root for them. You always want them to do well. You always really enjoy seeing them, and you're definitely one of those people. And 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 it really does. You know, I'm sure you've worked with people who are dickheads before, and you don't have to say who. But you know, people who are dickheads, the first opportunity that someone has to not work with you, they will not work with you yeah. because it is not fun to work with dickheads. Yeah. Well, that that's you know that's that's a truth. But we haven't worked with real dickheads because I literally call around. Like, we've been down to, like, three or four people for... Like I remember this one role uh, for... We were casting women, and there were three or four actresses, and they were I, equal, completely equal. Like, you could take any of them, and they were all excellent. And we just called everybody working in the last movie and said, what were they like? And, and, and I swear to God, two of them, the people said, fucking nightmare. And one of them said, angel. And that's the one we hired, you know? And nice. the others will never know. That's why they didn't get it. You know, they, they, you know, they, they were just... We avoid it's a way assholes. to do it. Yeah, <laughs> that stuff. That stuff follows you around. Yeah, the people talk. Crews talk. Yeah, yeah. craft service people talk. PAs talk. PAs become producers. Like, and not, and not that that's a reason that you should be nice to people. Yeah. But if you have a tendency toward dickheadedness, at least try to latch on to something that makes you nice to people. Yeah, but I have to say this also. <laughs> like, I've met people who, who have like terrible reputations or had terrible reputations who I couldn't have been nicer. You know, like, absolutely, like we worked with Alec Baldwin. We produced a movie outside uh, Providence with Alec Baldwin. And yeah. he was coming off, like, basically at every studio in town were saying, I'm not working with this guy. He's just, he's out of control. The nicest guy we ever worked with. Like, just a prince of a guy who, we had a low budget. We had nothing. He was the guy who was, like, coming early, hanging in late, helping out. You know, you know so it's surprising, like, you know, a, a lot of times you do kind of get, you, you know, some some one you have one bad day. It's like a restaurant. You have one bad day, and that could follow you, and it might not be accurate. Or you know, Alec Baldwin also seems like a guy because he's pretty fucking smart. Yeah, that probably has yeah. the same Bill Murray thing, where it's the studio heads, where he just they just rub him the wrong way. You know, like studio people just rub him the wrong yeah. way. Well, he's got his opinions, so he he, he does have yeah. his opinions. Yeah. But they're good opinions. Uh, <laughs> are you? Would you ever uh, do another movie that was as kind of personal as Outside Providence? Um, well, I wrote a book called The Comedy Writer, which yeah. is talk of doing into a movie, which is is is, is, is semi autobiographical. You know, uh, it's it's you know based on my when I moved out to L.A. But it's not. It's completely true. People say, "Wow, this happens." No, that didn't happen. That's fictional. That's why it's called a novel. You know, right. <laughs> it's it's not it's not an autobiography. But yeah, yeah I would do something. But I wouldn't want to. You see. 
like I didn't I didn't do uh, outside Providence. I I wrote the screenplay and handed it over to Michael Carreni. Yeah, he did a great job. And I wouldn't want to direct comedy writer, but if someone else did somebody who I really admired. I would definitely cut it loose. Otherwise, I have no interest in having it made. Really, I don't care if it gets made. But if if someone impressive came along and said, I'd like to do it, I'd say, God bless it. Go ahead. Cool. Here, just give me a dollar. You got all the rights. Don't, <laughs> don't I, li- I like to ask a- a- a writers this question, which is, um, you know, how do you get past the wall? It's just that where you have those days or time periods where you're just like, you're staring at Final Draft or whatever you're writing on, and goes nothing. There's just fucking nothing. Like, oh. you, how do you how do you get past those? We get that all the time. And what it is is you just don't stop. Like, you know, uh, the first of all, when we start writing a screenplay, we have two weeks of that. You know, where you sit there the first day, like sitting around, like, hey, you see the game? What happened? What, what are you doing, by the way? You know. And you know, I, I Belichick, he kind of blew it at the end of the first half. What's he not yeah, calling I know. Time out? You Fucking know? ridiculous. I know. And uh, so you do that. <laughs> Why did he stop? He had that on third down. He Matt, just it's stopped. not about that. Matt, stopped. it's not about that. Matt, he was just like, using it as a hypothetical. It was just, it was an, just example. an example yeah. on the story. God, damn it. I, I'm, I'm in pain from that, by the way. Me but you too. have a few days talking about that shit. And then, you know, you someone reading the paper and then some this and laughing and telling jokes, inside things. And then finally after two weeks, somebody said, hey, we, what the fuck are we doing? We got to work, you know? And so we get going. And then and then along the way, you, you hit these big things that would be called writer's block. You know, people like say, do you ever get writer's block? You say, well, that's the, that's the whole process of writing for me. I mean, it's like overcoming that thing where you've got nothing and you're sitting there. And I find if you don't quit, it's going to come. It may, take a, it may take a day, it may take a week, it may take a month. And when it gets really bad, we get in the car. This is what we do. We get in the car and we drive. I'll drive cross country. I've done it 22 times, by the way, Jesus cross Christ. country. And we just go. And my wife knows it. She'll when we're struggling and I'm coming home, I get nothing today, nothing again. She goes, just go, go, go somewhere. I'll get in the car and we. I will drive straight to Canada, to Vancouver, and back. By the way, just to something about being in a car for me. And and it is first of all you're locked in with the other guy. Okay, yeah. there's not none of that timeout, phone calls, all this stuff. We don't take cell phones. I don't have a cell phone. Never had a cell phone, and we don't take any of that stuff. And and you go along and you're just talking and talking, talking and talking, talking, and eventually. And also when you're in a car, uh, like you can't do this sitting on a couch because when you're sitting on a couch, part of your brain is thinking, you could be making those calls right now, or you could be doing dishes. Or you could be cleaning that up, or did, what about your kid's school, or you know all these yeah. things that you can be doing. But when you're driving, you're doing the only thing you could do, and driving second nature. You mm-hmm. don't have to think about driving, so you basically you're doing it without thinking of it, and it frees your mind to think clearly. Like and and it doesn't happen the first hour or two hours. It happens after like. 12 hours for me, <laughs> or 16 hours, or even When you like, hit Salem, Oregon. <laughs> no, even three days. And I get into a thing. I've never done TM, but it, what I read about it, it, that's exactly the state. You get into a state of like transcendental meditation where all of a sudden everything is clear and it's so obvious. It's like, oh, fuck, how could I not see that? But by the way, the first thing I do when I get in the car, first thing, when we're driving along, I'm, I'm, I know I'm giving you a very long window. This is answer. a great fucking answer. Uh, first thing I do is the first day, I have a pad next to me. And when I'm driving, I start thinking of things that are gnawing at me. Like, you know, I haven't talked to my sister Kathy in like three weeks. Call Kathy. Write it down. Do this. Hey, you know, your roommate from college. we got to check in. You know, uh, did, did I ever send this guy? You know, this thing. Things that you've been putting off that you haven't done that are gnawing at you, that making you feel not good. 
that just bugging you, you know, like you, guilt, yeah, guilt things, and you write a whole page until they're all done, all out of your head, and you know, well, I'm going to do those things. I've made a list of them, and every one of those things I will do when I get home, and I do do. I get home, I go right down the list and cover all those things. But I've freed my brain up. I've taken them out of my head now, and then that's where the clarity That is begins. the fundamental. Uh-huh. That is one of the fundamental principles of, and not to make everything sound too, too businessy, but that's, there's a guy named David Allen who wrote a book called Getting Things Done. And I used a lot of those principles when I started getting organized, and certainly some of them popped up in my, my book too. But it's basically, he calls that closing loops. You have to pull all of your thoughts into the physical universe and then just... Deal with them. Just deal with them. Like just doing something with them gets them out of here. It's exactly what you just said. And also the idea. um, I love the idea of when you don't have something to write about, you stimulate your brain by changing your environment and putting new stuff into your brain, and that kind of gets everything moved. This driving. This is a. I'm gonna try. I'm actually gonna try this. It's a. It's a. It's a really fantastic idea. I tend to go crazy on cross country trips after about the third day. (laughs) <laughs> like I'm, I'm stranded. I'm, I'm in a prison. I'm in a, I'm in a metal box prison. Yeah. Because there is literally, you get into the middle of the country, and if your car stopped, you would just be there. Yeah. Well, the first two days are the hardest for me because every forever first, first two days I'm doing it. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you doing this again? This you have so far to go, and it's so boring at first. No and, cell phone too, Pete. Yeah. What are you? How are you? You're gonna die out there yeah. with no cell phone. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, but but you push through it. You get past okay. it, All right, and, okay. it, and it does make it better. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, but uh, it, it, but uh, this is what happens, by the way. Writers, why? How we get over it? Like you're focusing on a scene. Okay, these guys go to a. Uh, they stop into a uh, bar. Uh, what's going to happen in the scene? By the way, we just we, we wrote Dumb and Number Two, which we hope to make this summer with Jim and Jeff again. Oh, oh yes, yes. shit! Yeah, it's being we're very close to making an announcement. I can't make it on this show, but I hope to make it in the next couple of weeks. Okay, cool. uh, we're very close, but we we took a long time to write this script. We busted our ass, and we want it because it's a high level. You know. By the way, wait, just to be clear, we didn't do Dumb and Dumber. But we really, we didn't want to make Dumb and Dumber 2 unless it can be as like Dumb and Dumber. And so we really busted our balls. But you drive along and you, you've, you're, you're thinking, you know, they're in the bar, what happens at the bar? And then somebody says something dumb, like, you know, uh, just in, ta- in talking about something else, somebody says something really stupid. And you say that, you know, that's something they could say. And then all of a sudden you start making lists of dumb things like that. And then all of a sudden it just takes off into a way you weren't expecting it to go. Like, you know, we're, we made lists of like dumb expressions, like, you know, even a, a blind squirrel's right twice a day. You know, <laughs> like, like that's something they'd say, you know, like, and then you say, what else would they say like that? And all of a sudden you've, you've come up like things like that. And then it, you, you find, you come in sideways. Yeah. You find out that the way you've been thinking of it is wrong. You're looking at it at the wrong angle. You have to come in from another side. Well, it's also, I mean, it's, it's like, um, you know, for me, the, the stand-up that works the most, er, the best, is stuff that just sort of happens in the moment, not the stuff where I'm sitting at a computer going, and then I say this, oh, yeah. and then here's the kicker, you know, yeah. it's always that sort of in the moment, like, oh, yeah, this is, yes. uh, this is a very organic experience that's, that's happening, and, and your brain kind of finds those Absolutely. answers. Absolutely, it's more real, and that's why you go out at, you know, you go to a party or something, you write down a couple of things, and those are the best ones, yeah. as opposed to sitting at a desk thinking of jokes. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we're at the end of our, our hour, but uh, th- I don't know why that sounded like therapy all of a sudden. Peter, we're at the end of our yeah. hour. Well, oh, we're just about out. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I love having you on the show, and I would love to have you come back if, if you want to. Just uh, fuck around. It would be my pleasure. I like next it. time we can talk about the comedy writer. I mean, there, there's so many different things that 
that you have that I think are relevant to uh, to anyone with particularly with a comedy nerd brain. Well, thanks. I, listen, I love being here. I do it anytime. All we'll right. Talk about Wes Welker. What the fuck's going on? Uh, I can't go there because I'm a I, I, I'm in too much pain. <laughs> oh, I need a God. few days. What's what's that? What are you talking Patriots. about? Patriots. Fucking that game on Sunday. What happened? They lost. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, Thank but you. did the other team win? Yep. That's how it works. Oh. Out. I didn't I wouldn't say the other team won. I said we lost. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. There's an old there's an old Jeff Stilson bit. Did you know Jeff Stilson, stand up comic? No. I think does Jeff write for like Letterman or like he was a, so. he was a stand up in the eighties that I loved and he had this really dry sense of humor and it was like it was like how come <laughs> how come uh, sports stars always thank God whenever they win, but the losers always blame themselves. Just once I like to see someone go, Yeah, we were playing a pretty good game out there until Jesus made me fumble. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So fucking love that bit. It's about as sportsy as I get. Yeah. That's good. But I guess the Super Bowl is coming up. Yeah, February third, which is the day that our PBA, uh, I uh, I bowled in the celebrity tournament. Oh, really? And I, it's I, I, now, are you good at bowling? Because your dad was a bowler. I'm pretty good. I'm not gonna what's lie. What's your high? He's well at bowling. I'm. A- <laughs> what's your What's your all time high? Two seventy nine. My all time high is two eighty nine. Two eighty nine. But I was eleven when yeah. I bowled it. Uh, it was ten strikes in a row, and then I left and there was it. Bumpers up, and it there was, were no um, bumpers at that time. Oh, and, then I, and then I and then I and then I left a ten pin. It was ten strikes in a row, and then a ten pin. Ooh. Fucking it crushed me. I almost, I almost had it, and I've never. And then I kind of quit bowling after I was thirteen, and just picked it back up again in the last year or so. But the fact that I've never bowled a perfect game is is gets under my skin. And then my half brother, who lives in Tennessee, just bowled the perfect game. He got to it first, and he and he's sort of a casual bowler, and he he got he got to it oh, first. Yeah. So I, I credit my brother Eddie Hardwick. Uh, who uh, is an actual I like person. the idea of a 14-year-old washed-up bowler you. Yeah. <laughs> you guys don't even know. Get the fuck out of here. Drinking you know, sarsaparilla the, at the, the bar. Last. Hey, Chris, I'm not that 10-pin. You fucking get out of my face. You just start inhaling whatever they wax the floor with. Yeah. Climactic scene in the Kingpin where Bill Murray had to have three uh, strikes in a row. We were figuring that's going to take some time, but we had, by the way, there's 1,000, 1,500 people in the... We were shot at the, in uh, Reno, Nevada at the bowling uh, center. Silver yeah. Legacy. Yeah. And um, we explain he has to get three, uh, you know, strikes. So we're going to keep going until he gets three. He gets first time, boom, strike. Second time, boom, strike. Third time. The fucking place erupts. <laughs> oh, my God, of course. Three in a row. Bill Murray strikes the first three he tries. And that's why that crowd goes out of their mind. They couldn't believe <laughs> how fucking Because they'd, they'd seen Woody Bowl and it wasn't pretty. Yeah. <laughs> that is so Bill Murray. I need yeah. you now. More than ever. (laughs) Well, Pete, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here... You're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery 
Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.